Section one of Beacon Lights of History, Volume Nine European Statesmen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by K. Hand. Beacon Lights of History, Volume Nine European Statesmen by John Lord. Mirabeau, Part One. A.D. 1749 to 1791. The French Revolution. Three events of preeminent importance have occurred in our modern times. These are the Protestant Reformation, the American War of Independence, and the French Revolution. The most complicated and varied of these great movements is the French Revolution, on which thousands of volumes have been written, so that it is impossible even to classify the leading events and the ever-changing features of that rapid and exciting movement. The first act of that great drama was the attempt of reformers and patriots to destroy feudalism, with its privileges and distinctions and injustices, by unscrupulous and wild legislation, and to give a new constitution to the state. The best representative of this movement was Mirabeau, and I accordingly select him as the subject of this lecture. I cannot describe the violence and anarchy which succeeded the reign of terror, ending in a directory, and the usurpation of Napoleon. The subject is so vast that I must confine myself to a single point, in which, however, I would unfold the principles of the reformers and the logical results to which their principles led. The remote causes of the French Revolution I have already glanced at in a previous lecture. The most obvious of these, doubtless, was the misgovernment which began with Louis the Fourteenth, and continued so disgracefully under Louis the Fifteenth, which destroyed all reverence for the throne, even loyalty itself, the chief support of the monarchy. The next most powerful influence that created revolution was feudalism which ground down the people by unequal laws and irritated them by the haughtiness insolence and heartlessness of the aristocracy and thus destroyed all respect for them ending in bitter animosities closely connected with these two gigantic evils was the excessive taxation which oppressed the nation and made it discontented and rebellious the fourth most prominent cause of agitation was the writings of infidel philosophers and economists whose unsound and sophistical theories held out fallacious hopes and undermined those sentiments by which all governments and institutions are preserved these will be incidentally presented as thereby we shall be able to trace the career of the remarkable man who controlled the national assembly and who applied the torch to the edifice whose horrid and fearful fires he would afterwards have suppressed it is easy to destroy it is difficult to reconstruct nor is there any human force which can arrest a national conflagration once it is kindled only on its ashes can a new structure arise and this only after long and laborious efforts and humiliating disappointments it might have been possible for the government to contend successfully with the various elements of discontent among the people intoxicated with those abstract theories of rights which rousseau had so eloquently defended if it had possessed a strong head and the sinews of war but louis the sixteenth a modest timid temperate moral young man of twenty-three 
by the death of his father and elder brothers, had succeeded to the throne of his dissolute grandfather at just the wrong time. He was a gentleman, but no ruler. He had no personal power, and the powers of his kingdom had been dissipated by his reckless predecessors. Not only was the army demoralized, and inclined to fraternize with the people, but there was no money to pay the troops, or provide for the ordinary expenses of the court. There was an alarming annual deficit, and the finances were utterly disordered. Successive ministers had exhausted all ordinary resources and the most ingenuous forms of taxation. They made promises, and resorted to every kind of expediency, which had only a temporary effect. The primal evils remained. The national treasury was empty. Calonne and Necker pursued each a different policy, and with the same results. The extravagance of the one and the economy of the other were alike fatal. Nobody would make sacrifices in a great national exigency. The nobles and the clergy adhered tenaciously to their privileges, and the court would curtail none of its unnecessary expenses. Things went on from bad to worse, and the financiers were filled with alarm. National bankruptcy stared everybody in the face. If the king had been a Richelieu, he would have dealt summarily with the nobles and rebellious mobs. He would have called to his aid the talents of the nation, appealed to its patriotism, compelled the courts to make sacrifices, and prevented the printing and circulation of seditious pamphlets. The government should have allied itself with the people, granted their requests, and marched to victory under the name of patriotism. But Louis Sixteenth was weak, irresolute, vacillating, and uncertain. He was a worthy sort of man, with good intentions and without the vices of his predecessors. But he was surrounded with incompetent ministers and bad advisers, who distrusted the people and had no sympathy with their wrongs. He would have made concessions if his ministers had advised him. He was not ambitious nor unpatriotic. He simply did not know what to do. In his perplexity he called together the principal heads of the nobility, some hundred and twenty great seigneurs called the notables but this assembly was dissolved without accomplishing anything it was full of jealousies and evinced no patriotism it would not part with its privileges or usurpations it was at this crisis that mirabeau first appeared upon the stage as a pamphleteer writing bitter and envenomed attacks on the government and exposing with scorching and unsparing sarcasms the evils of the day especially in the department of finance he laid bare to the eyes of the nation the sores of the body politic, the accumulated evils of centuries. He exposed all the shams and lies to which ministers had resorted. He was terrible in the fierceness and eloquence of his assaults, and in the lucidity of his statements. Without being learned, he contrived to make use of the learning of others, and made it burn with the brilliancy of his powerful and original genius. Everybody read his various essays and tracts, and was filled with admiration but his moral character was bad, was even execrable, and notoriously outrageous. He was kind-hearted and generous, made friends, and used them. No woman, it is said, could resist his marvelous fascination, all the more remarkable since his face was as ugly as that of Wilkes, and was marked by the smallpox. The excesses of his private life and his ungovernable passions made him distrusted by the court and the government. He was both hated and admired. Mirabeau belonged to a noble family of very high rank in Provence, of Italian descent. 
his father marquis mirabeau was a man of liberal sentiments not unknown to literary fame by his treatises on political economy but was eccentric and violent although his oldest son count mirabeau the subject of this lecture was precocious intellectually and very bright so that the father was proud of him he was yet so ungovernable and violent in his temper and got into so many disgraceful scrapes that the marquis was compelled to discipline him severely all to no purpose inasmuch as he was injudicious in his treatment and ultimately cruel he procured lettres de cachet from the king and shut up his disobedient and debauched son in various state prisons but the count generally contrived to escape only to get into fresh difficulties so that he became a wanderer and an exile compelled to support himself by his pen mirabeau was in berlin in a sort of semi-diplomatic position when the assembly of notables was convened his keen prescience and profound sagacity induced him to return to his distracted country where he knew his services would soon be required though debauched extravagant and unscrupulous he was not unpatriotic he had an intense hatred of feudalism and saw in its varied inequalities the chief source of the national calamities his detestation of feudal injustices was intensified by his personal sufferings in the various castles where he had been confined by arbitrary power at this period the whole tendency of his writings was toward the destruction of the ancien regime he breathed defiance scorn and hatred against the very class to which he belonged he was a cataline an aristocratic demagogue revolutionary in his spirit and aims so that he was mistrusted feared and detested by the ruling powers and by the aristocracy generally while he was admired and flattered by the people who were tolerant of his vices and imperious temper on the wretched failure of the assembly of the notables the prime minister necker advised the king to assemble the states-general the three orders of the state the nobles the clergy and a representation of the people it seemed to the government impossible to proceed longer amid universal distress and hopeless financial embarrassment without the aid and advice of this body which had not been summoned for one hundred and fifty years it became of course an object of ambition to count mirabeau to have a seat in this illustrious assembly to secure this he renounced his rank became a plebeian solicited the votes of the people and was selected a deputy both from marseilles and Aix. he chose Aix, and his great career began with the meeting of the states-general at versailles the fifth of may seventeen eighty nine it was composed of three hundred nobles three hundred priests and six hundred deputies of the third estate twelve hundred in all it is generally conceded that these representatives of the three orders were on the whole a very respectable body of men patriotic and incorruptible but utterly deficient in political experience and in powers of debate the deputies were largely composed of country lawyers honest but as conceited as they were inexperienced the vanity of frenchmen is so inordinate that nearly every man in the assembly felt quite competent to govern the nation or frame a constitution enthusiasm and hope animated the whole assembly and everybody saw in this states-general the inauguration of a glorious future one of the most brilliant and impressive chapters in carlyle's french revolution that great prose poem is devoted to the procession of the three orders from the church of st louis to the church of notre dame to celebrate the mass parts of which i quote 
shouts render the air one shout at which grecian birds might drop dead it is indeed a stately solemn sight the elected of france and then the court of france they are marshalled and march there all in prescribed place and costume our commons in plain black mantle and white cravat noblesse in gold worked bright dyed cloaks of velvet resplendent rustling with laces waving with plumes the clergy in rocher albe and other clerical insignia lastly the king himself and household in their brightest blaze of pomp their brightest and final one which of the six hundred individuals in plain white cravats that have come up to regenerate france might one guess would become their king for a king or leader they as all bodies of men must have he with the thick locks will it be through whose shaggy beetle brows and rough hewn seamed carbuncled face there look natural ugliness smallpox incontinence bankruptcy and burning fire of genius it is gabriel honore riquetti de mirabeau man ruling deputy of a yes that is the type frenchman of this epoch as voltaire was of the last he is french in his aspirations acquisitions in his virtues and vices mark him well the national assembly were all different without that one nay he might say with old despot the national assembly i am that now if mirabeau is the greatest of these six hundred who may be the meanest shall we say that anxious slight ineffectual-looking man under thirty in spectacles his eyes troubled careful with upturned face snuffing dimly the uncertain future time complexion of a multiplex atrabilious color the final shade of which may be pale sea-green that greenish colored individual is an advocate of arras his name is maximilian robespierre between which extremes of grandest and meanest so many grand and mean roll on towards their several destinies in that procession there is experienced mounier whose presidential parliamentary experience the stream of things shall soon leave stranded a petion has left his gown and briefs at chartres for the stormier sort of pleading a protestant clerical saint etienne a slender young eloquent and vehement barnave will help to regenerate france and then there is worthy dr guillotin bailey likewise time-honored historian of astronomy and the abbe saez cold but elastic wiry instinct with the pride of logic passionless or with but one passion that of self-conceit this is the saye who shall be system builder constitutional builder general and build constitutions which shall unfortunately fall before we get the scaffolding away among the nobles are liancourt and la rochefoucauld and pious lally and lafayette whom mirabeau calls grandison cromwell and the viscount mirabeau called beryl mirabeau on account of his rotundity and the quantity of strong liquor he contains among the clergy is the abbe maury who does not want for audacity and the cure gregoire who shall be a bishop and talleyrand paracord his reverence of autun with sardonic grimness a man living in falsehood and on falsehood yet not wholly a false man so in stately procession the elected of france pass on 
some to honor others to dishonor not a few towards massacre confusion emigration and desperation for several weeks this famous states-general remain inactive unable to agree whether they shall deliberate in a single hall or in three separate chambers the deputies of course wish to deliberate in a single chamber since they equal in number both the clergy and nobles and some few nobles had joined them and more than a hundred of the clergy but a large majority of both the clergy and the noblesse insist with pertinacity on the three separate chambers since united they would neutralize the third estate if the deputies prevailed they would inaugurate reforms to which the other orders would never consent long did these different bodies of the states-general deliberate and stormy were the debates the nobles showed themselves haughty and dogmatical the deputies showed themselves aggressive and revolutionary the king and the ministers looked on with impatience and disgust but were irresolute had the king been a cromwell or a napoleon he would have dissolved the assemblies but he was timid and hesitating necker the prime minister was for compromise he would accept reforms but only in a constitutional way the knot was at last cut by the abbe saez a political priest and one of the deputies for paris the finest intellect in the body next to mirabeau and at first more influential than he since the count was generally distrusted on account of his vices nor had he as yet exhibited his great powers saez said for the deputies alone we represent ninety-six per cent of the whole nation the people is sovereign we therefore as its representatives constitute ourselves a national assembly his motion was passed by acclamation on june seventeenth and the third estate assumed the right to act for france in a legal and constitutional point of view this was a usurpation if ever there was one it was says von seibel the able german historian of the french revolution a declaration of open war between arbitrary principles and existing rights it was as if the house of representatives in the united states or the house of commons in england should declare themselves the representatives of the nation ignoring the senate or the house of lords its logical sequence was revolution the prodigious importance of this step cannot be overrated it transferred the powers of the monarchy to the third estate it would logically lead to other usurpations the subversion of the throne and the utter destruction of feudalism for this last was the aim of the reformers mirabeau himself at first shrank from this violent measure but finally adopted it he detested feudalism and the privileges of the clergy he wanted radical reforms but would have preferred to gain them in a constitutional way like pym in the english revolution but if reforms could not be gained constitutionally then he would accept revolution as the lesser evil constitutionally radical reforms were hopeless the ministers and the king doubtless would have made some concessions but not enough to satisfy the deputies so these same deputies took the entire work of legislation into their own hands they constituted themselves the sole representatives of the nation the nobles and the clergy might indeed deliberate with them they were not altogether ignored but their interests and rights were to be disregarded in that state of ferment and discontent which existed when the states-general was convened the nobles and the clergy probably knew the spirit of the deputies and therefore refused to sit with them they knew from the innumerable pamphlets and tracts which were issued from the press that radical changes were desired to which they themselves were opposed and they had the moral support of the government on their side the deputies of the third estate were bent on the destruction of feudalism 
as the only way to remedy the national evils which were so glaring and overwhelming they probably knew that their proceedings were unconstitutional and illegal but thought that their acts would be sanctioned by their patriotic intentions they were resolved to secure what seemed to them rights and thought little of duties if these inestimable and vital rights should be granted without usurpation they would be satisfied if not then they would resort to usurpation to them their course seemed to be dictated by the higher law what to them were legalities that perpetuated wrongs the constitution was made for man not man for the constitution had the three orders deliberated together in one hall although against precedent and legality the course of revolution might have been directed into a different channel or if an able and resolute king had been on the throne he might have united with the people against the nobles and secured all the reforms that were imperative without invoking revolution or he might have dispersed the deputies at the point of the bayonet and raised taxes by arbitrary imposition as able despots have ever done we cannot penetrate the secrets of providence it may have been ordered in divine justice and wisdom that the french people should work out their own deliverance in their own way in mistakes in suffering and in violence and point the eternal moral that in experience vanity and ignorance are fatal to sound legislation and sure to lead to errors which prove disastrous that natural progress is incompatible with crime that evils can only gradually be removed that wickedness ends in violence a majority of the deputies meant well they were earnest patriotic and enthusiastic but they knew nothing of the science of government or of constitution-making which demand the highest maturity of experience and wisdom as i have said nearly four hundred of them were country lawyers as conceited as they were inexperienced both mirabeau and saez had a supreme contempt for them as a whole they wanted what they called rights and were determined to get them any way they could disregarding obstacles disregarding forms and precedents and they were backed up and urged forward by ignorant mobs and wicked demagogues who hated the throne the clergy and the nobles hence the deputies made mistakes they could see nothing better than unscrupulous destruction and they did not know how to reconstruct they were bewildered and embarrassed and listened to the orders of the palais royal the first thing of note which occurred when they resolved to call themselves the national assembly and not the third estate which they were only was done by mirabeau he ascended the tribune when brise the master of ceremonies came with a message from the king for them to join the other orders and said in his voice of melodious thunder we are here by the command of people and will only disperse by the force of bayonets from that moment till his death he ruled the assembly the disconcerted messenger returned to his sovereign what did the king say at this defiance of royal authority did he rise in wrath and indignation and order his guards to disperse the rebels no the amiable king said meekly well let them remain there what a king for such stormy times o shade of richelieu thy work has perished rousseau a greater genius than thou wert hath undermined the institutions and the despotism of two hundred years end of section one